This morning, I wanted to take an opportunity to go through a book that has been close to my heart for some time. You could probably guess that it's been a book of interest for me for a while. A couple of weeks ago in evening service, we had been asked the question about what is something that you do, something that you go out of your way to present an opportunity for the gospel, to get something out there, to to communicate something about what you believe. A lot of people share different things about putting verses on, on a wall or on an email or text. One that I failed to think of in that moment and something that I thought of since then was my son. <laughs> when we were first expecting my child, I thought, what am I going to name him? And of course, anytime you name a child, it says more about the parent than the child. And now the child has to bear that for the rest of their life. It was uh, shortly after 2004 when my wife and I got married and there was David and Manny and Pokey and Jason, all great, strong Red Sox names. But we put those to the side and wanted to, to, to think about something that would be able to provide an opportunity for the gospel. We gave him the name Micah. The name Micah is actually a question. Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? It was a, a book, a prophet, uh, has a couple passages that probably many of us are familiar with, but may not be familiar with the story, the whole context of the book so what we're going to do this morning is go through the entire book of Micah. It's only a few chapters, so it's not too long. Seven chapters in total. What we're going to do is go through to get the, the main message of the book of Micah. While I'm introducing it, you can turn. It's in the minor prophets, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. So it's uh, in the middle of all the minor prophets there. As I'm speaking, you can turn there. But we live in a world and a time that can easily lead us to be discouraged, right? doesn't take much news the news cycle is constantly being turned over to discourage us, to make us doubt, to make us fear, capitalize on those things. That is get what gets people tuned in, right? It seems that every time you turn on the news, we're inundated with looming international conflicts, talks of tariffs and market instability, famine, natural disasters, and that doesn't say anything about the declining moral compass of our own nation. Especially with the 2020 election looming and the presidential candidates seem to be competing with each other to see who can take our country farther and faster away from anything that could be considered God-honoring. And it can be discouraging to hear the rhetoric, to hear the ideas, and then hear the applause after the ideas. It can certainly be discouraging for us, and it can make us doubt what is the direction that we're headed, what is the nation that we're going to hand off to our children. But as bad as our society has become, and as bad as the direction that we're going in, we must turn to Scripture, to God's Word, to gain a proper context and understanding, a proper perspective of, of where we stand. While we are a nation that was founded generally by a group of people with Christian ideals, we were not founded by God. We were not chosen by God like Israel was. We look in the Old Testament, we look at God calling a nation for his own purposes and to, to represent him. We see how badly that ended, <laughs> how badly that went, and the, the peaks and the valleys of that. And we ask ourselves, well, what chances our country have if they couldn't handle it, if they couldn't carry it out? This morning, we, as we draw our attention to the book of Micah, I want to draw out some comfort and faith in God 
that is above the degradation and seemingly hopelessness of our times. Now, the book of Micah is written mostly to the southern tribes of Judah, southern tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin. To give a little bit of historical context at this point, the nation of Israel has conquered the land. They've been in the land. We've had Saul, David, Solomon. After Solomon passes away because of his his unfaithfulness and fidelities, the nation is torn into two. Solomon's son Rehoboam listens to unwise counsel and Jeroboam takes the northern tribes of Israel and splits into two. So you have now two functioning, often conflicting neighbors that are ruled differently. And we see the northern tribes get worse and worse and worse and they have no righteous godly leaders. The southern tribes kind of goes back and forth, back and forth with good kings, bad kings, good kings, bad kings, bad kings, bad kings, good king, bad, 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 good, good, bad, bad, and so on and so forth. As we get to the time of Micah, he is writing, as we see in the first verse, during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This is mostly written to the southern tribes, but there is a condemnation of the northern tribes in the first chapter. But at this point, the northern tribes of Israel, Assyria comes in and takes them away. And they are taken off and scattered into captivity. We don't know too much about Micah. There's a lot of Micahs. If you look and read through the Old Testament, you'll see Micahs everywhere, not the same ones. Very common name. We don't know a whole lot about this Micah other than the fact that he was born and raised in a rural community kind of west of Jerusalem in the Shephelah. It was a a place of agriculture. It wasn't the center of commerce that Jerusalem would have been, but they would have been feeling the consequences of the decisions that Jerusalem had been making. Now, Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah all have different rules, and you can read through the book of 2 Kings to get a context of this, but to give you a brief description of the times, Jotham was the son of Uzziah, and if you read through the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, during the days of King Uzziah, Isaiah saw this revelation, and Micah is serving kind of at the same time of Isaiah. Being the son of Uzziah, Jotham did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he didn't go so far as to removing the high places. High places were places of false worship. The altars where the gods of the Canaanites and the surrounding people, all the ites, uh, were worshipped. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he did not go so far as to tear down and remove these high places that had become so common during Solomon's reign. His son Ahaz did not turn out so well. Ahaz was thoroughly a wicked man. The epitome, the apex of, uh, or the depth of his wickedness was that he offered up his own son as a burnt offering to a false god. We can hardly imagine doing that, but that was the, the depth of his sin and his commitment to false worship. When he was being attacked, the northern tribes in Syria were coming down and bearing down on the southern tribes of Judah and attacking them. And rather than appealing to God for his salvation, he looked and said, who's the bigger bully on the block? And they said, oh, Assyria looks like a really nice group of people that could help me. And he appeals to Assyria. They come in and they conquer the northern tribes of Israel. They are saved for a moment, but then Assyria would come further down into Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. And we see Sennacherib and uh, during the days of Hezekiah and the siege of Jerusalem. So all of that's kind of going on in this time. But Ahaz 
to go pay his thanks and to pay a heavy tribute cost to Assyria, he goes and he sees, wow, they have a really cool altar here. We should worship their gods. And he comes back to the temple and says, I want you to push the bronze table over and we're going to build an altar just like they have in Assyria in the temple. That was his syncretic, syncretistic combinations of false worship in with true worship. When Hezekiah takes over, we see a lot of reforms within the nation of Israel. In 2 Kings 18, verses 5 through 7, he said he trusted, it says he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. And wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. See a distinct contrast between Hezekiah and his father Ahaz. We're left with the question, what happened? What happened in Hezekiah's life that made him repent, that led him to that repentance? The answer is the book of Micah. As we see in Jeremiah chapter 26, it tells us that Hezekiah heard the words of the Lord of Micah, the words of Micah through, through Micah. He led the nations, the nation of Israel to repentance. He heard the words of Micah, the very words that we're going to be going over this morning, and he was cut through to the core and he repented and he led the nation of Israel in repentance and led them into one of the most prosperous religious times for them under the reign of Hezekiah. Now, as we go into the book of Micah, it's broken up into three main sections. First one being chapters one and two, the second being three through five, the last section, chapter six and seven. In each of the three sections, you have a good and a bad, a bad first, then the good. You have the bad, the depravity, the disobedience, the faithlessness of Israel. And then you have a peak a small vision of the goodness of God. As we go through what we're going to do this morning, rather than going through chapters one through six, what I want to do is highlight the faithlessness of the people through each section and then go back into each section and see the faithfulness of God. We're going to see three evidences first, three evidences of the faithless people of Israel. Three evidences of the faithless people of Israel, and then we will follow that up with three evidences of a faithful God. As we begin, please uh, join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, it is a blessing to know and to hear how many have been praying for this morning and have been lifting me up to you, God. And I pray that you would hear those prayers, God, that you, you would be known this morning, your word would be understood through frail words such as mine, God, and that we would uh, leave this morning, God, with a better understanding of our own common faithlessness and your abounding faithfulness, God, that our hearts would be lifted up to worship you, God, and, and to know you in a better way, God, so that we can serve you in a fuller way. We praise your name. Amen. The first evidence that we see of the faithless people is in chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 2, verse 11, we see the faithless population. This is a condemnation of the people as a whole, a faithless people. This is not necessarily how Israel was used to being spoken to. And we'll see that they had a high view of themselves as we walk our way through here. We see in verse 2, as we start out, 
Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down on a steep place. All of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Now in these passages, you have the opening declaration of God's animosity against his own people. So you have been faithless. And normally, when Israel would have thought of God coming down from heavens, it would have been, beat up the nations around us. Save us. Focus your wrath on the people who are persecuting us. Instead, we see the judgment of God coming against them. Jerusalem had fallen into a malaise. They assumed that God was on their side. And they faced no real threat or consequence of their sin. They looked at the Assyrians coming down and taking away the northern tribes of Israel. And they said, yeah, of course God would do that. Of course God would function in that way. They're godless people up there. We're in Jerusalem. We're in God's holy city. It's the city of Zion. This can't fall. When you see Samaria referenced here, this is referring to the northern tribes of Israel. And Samaria was their center of worship. When Rehoboam wanted, he wanted to prevent people from going down to Jerusalem to worship. So he said, why don't we build our own Jerusalem here in Samaria? And we'll set up our own altars for worship. And I'll give you these nice golden calves for you to be able to come and worship here. And so you don't have to go all the way down to the southern tribes of Judah. And you can leave your givings, your taxes and everything. You can, you can just leave them here in the northern tribes of Israel. And God is coming down against their false worship, both in the north and in the south. And then we see in verses 8 through 16, 8 and 9 are, are remarkable verses. We see the heart of Micah poured out on behalf of his people. He says, for this, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourn like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, Jerusalem. We see Micah broken over the sin of his people. This is not like Jonah who goes to Assyria and walks around Nineveh and proclaims God's destruction coming to them and then sits outside the city waiting for a ball of fire to descend from heaven and consume the city. This is Micah broken over the sin of his own people. One commentator said, notice the attitude with which we should announce God's judgment. People are offended by the Bible's prophetic message, but what if they saw tears in our eyes and a heart that is broken for them? How heartless it is when Christians denounce the sin of the culture, but make little effort to point out 
the way to God's mercy through faith in the blood of Christ. You can picture this plea of Micah with tears in his eyes, crying out against the faithlessness of his own people, lamenting and wailing for their sin, that this is not the direction that we should be headed. This is not what we were chosen for. This is not how we're supposed to be representing a a holy God to the nations around us. Instead, Mike is saying, like, we would all recognize the sin of the northern tribe was heinous. He said, the infection has come down. It's in us now. It's incurable. And then in verse 10 to the end of the chapter, he presents a lot of word plays that if you were reading this in the Hebrew, you'd be able to recognize. For example, in, in verse 10, it says, In Bethlehaphra, roll yourselves in the dust. Now, Bethlehem in Hebrew literally means dust town. He's using word plays where he brings up the name of the city and then presents a word picture of what is happening. And he does that all the way through here. In verse 11, Shafir means beauty. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. Said so you think you're beautiful, but... You're just really vulnerable. You're naked and shameful. In verse 11, Za'anon, he says, the inhabitants of Za'anon do not come out. Za'anon means going out. (laughs) The city of going out, (laughs) the city of going out, do not come out. So all the way through here, he's proclaiming the guilt of all the little towns and cities, provinces all around the area of southern Jerusalem and even on the gate of Jerusalem itself. When we get to chapter 2, we see that their sin has gone to the point, read first verses of chapter 2 with me. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. They're seeking opportunity to be able to take advantage and steal from each other. And that's the opposite of the way that God has set up the nation of Israel. God has set up the nation of Israel for them all to be equal You had years of Sabbath and years of Jubilee where land that had been turned over or sold would revert back to the people who had given it up. It wasn't a, a, a nation that was meant to make one person rich and another person poor. They were all supposed to be equal before God. He said, but... You're, you're not doing that. You're looking for opportunities to take advantage of each other, to steal each other's land. And they didn't want to hear sound wisdom. Look at verse 6. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So imagine that this is not a popular message that Mike is rolling around the countryside proclaiming the coming judgment of God. They said, don't say that. Don't preach that. We we shouldn't be talking about such things. They didn't want to hear the sound wisdom coming from Micah. They just wanted to hear what pleased them. We see that throughout the Old Testament. A king would hear a prophet say condemning words, and they're like, oh, I don't like that message. Is there anyone who has a better message for us? 
oh, you like rainbows and unicorns. Okay, let's bring that prophet up. That sounds like good, good news. That was a common guilt of Israel, that they didn't want to hear the words of the Lord. They wanted to hear what, what made them happy. Verse 11, it says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher to this people. You don't want to hear someone coming with sound words of wisdom. You want to hear a guy talk about frivolity and happiness and drinking and pleasure. That's your preacher, Micah says. You don't want to hear someone bring bad news, or let alone the truth of the situation. Like not only do you not want to hear the truth, you want to hear a lie. So we have the overall faithlessness of the population, faithlessness of the people. Then secondly, the second evidence of a faithless people are their faithless leaders. Their faithless leaders, the people both civically and religiously, the people who were supposed to be guiding them to the truth, they were faithless. Chapter 3, the first three verses Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. That's disgusting. Now, I don't think he's literally talking about cannibalism there, but we do know that Ahaz had burnt his own son as an offering to God, to a false god. And if he would be so willing to go that far, who knows what the rest of the leaders were doing. If that's what the, the ultimate leader, the ultimate king is doing... The leaders are supposed to be leading the people in righteousness, and he's talking about flaying the skin off of people? They'll cry out to the Lord, verse 4, but he will not answer them. In fact, he will hide his face from them at the time, because they have made their deeds evil. So, but not only is it the civic leaders that are leading them astray, but we see it's the religious leaders as well. Verse 5 through 8, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but they declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. This is like the preacher who gets up and when the offering plate is full, then it's a good message. But when the offering plate is lacking, then it's a message of condemnation. It has nothing to do with the actual sinful, righteous climate of the people, but everything to do with how padded their pockets are. Therefore, verse 6, it shall be a night to you without vision, darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. These prophets that were going around supposedly preaching the, the word of God... God says, you're not going to have a message to preach. At least not from me. Normally, you're hearing from God, and it's going to be like darkness. You're not going to hear anything. You're not going to see anything. You're going to be confused and bewildered. 
But Micah says, but as for me, I, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. These, these other prophets, they're going to be made mute. They're going to be blind. But I, I preach with the spirit of God, the spirit of Yahweh. Then verse 9 to the end of the chapter, you see a wholesale judgment on the leaders of Israel. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, rulers of house of Israel, who detest justice, make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? Their actions are corrupt and they say, but oh, we're safe. God's on our side. No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. They looked at the incoming nation of Assyria and they said, oh, we're safe. We have Jerusalem. God would never let Jerusalem fall. We could basically do whatever we wanted and God would never let Jerusalem fall. Micah says, it's going to be a plow field when they're done with it. It's going to be a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house, a wooded height. Utter destruction. So they have faithless people, faithless leaders, and finally a faithless worship. We see that in chapter 6, in the last section of the book of Micah, chapter 6. Let's skip to verse 6. Micah's anticipating their reaction to God about what should we offer you with? What would you be happy with? So it's this idea of they're living in disobedience and God, what could I possibly do to make you happy? As if it's an impossibility. What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come before him with a burnt offering, a calf a year old? Well, that would frankly be a good start. So, but they're saying, what would God be satisfied with? Would he be satisfied if I brought a calf and, as a burnt offering? Then they up the ante, verse 7. Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Oh, God, I bring a calf as a burnt offering and you don't accept it? What, about, what if I brought ten thousands? What if I had rivers of oil? Would you be happy then, God? Oh, no, no? Well, maybe shall I give the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Maybe I'll just throw my own child on the altar. Would you be happy then, God? Do you notice the irony in that statement? They're imagining what is, what is the most radical, extreme thing we could do? Offer up our firstborn as a sacrifice. When do we see that? It's the foreshadowing of Christ. But here they, they posit it as a, a ridiculous idea that an innocent would die for the guilty. But they, they put that forward as, a, as an extreme. Would you be happy with that, God? And God says, 
He's told you, O man, what is good. I've told you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Verse 8, do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. A verse you're probably pretty familiar with. This is the finest summary, one commentator said, of the content of practical religion to be found in all of the Old Testament. This is what God wants. Do justly, treating people fairly, the, quite the opposite of what the leaders of the nation of Israel were doing at the time, to bring justice to people, to love mercy. This is the, the Hebrew word chesed. It could be the main thematic word of the book of Psalms. You see all the way through there, the loving kindness of the Lord shall endure forever. It's that word chesed, to love mercy, loving kindness. It gives where no giving is required. It acts when no action is deserved and it penetrates both attitudes and activities. Finally, walk humbly to walk with an awareness of the holiness of God and the neediness of man. I want you to do justly. I want you to love mercy, and I want you to walk humbly with me. I don't want grand offerings. I don't want ten thousands bulls and rivers of oil. I don't want you to throw a kid on a fire. I want your heart. But you can read through the end of the chapter that this is not what they were willing to give to God. And so destruction would come. So those are the three evidences of a faithless people. Now we're going to see three evidences of a faithful God. So turn back in the first section, right at the end of chapter 2. You could blink and you'd miss it. Right at the end of chapter 2, verse 12, we see that God is first evidence of a faithful God is that he is faithful to preserve. He's faithful to preserve. Verse 12. This is right on the heels of of them saying, we want someone who's going to lie to us. We want someone who's going to give us fake news. Verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them and the Lord at their head. God's saying, you can lead yourself as far astray as you possibly could, but I'm going to bring you back. I have a remnant. And we read about that in Romans chapter 10 and 11 this morning. God said, you could wander as far as you could think of, as you could dream. Be as sinful as you could imagine. But I'm more faithful than you are sinful. And I have a remnant for my own. And I will draw you back. And the king passes on before him, the Lord at their head. said, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. You can be as faithless, as wicked as you could imagine. But my grace will pursue you to those ends and beyond. So we see that he is faithful to preserve, regardless of the present indiscretions of God's people, God's faithfulness 
did not depend on their willingness or ability to remain faithful, but solely on his determination to be faithful. Secondly, we see that God is faithful to redeem, faithful to redeem. We see that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 4, 1 through 5, we see a future kingdom promised. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains that shall be lifted up above the hills and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against the nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts is spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. In the midst of all this talk of the wickedness of Israel, God said, I have a plan. I have a kingdom. I have a plan to redeem you and to make you a nation for my own glory. And we get the smallest peak, the smallest preview into what that nation is going to look like. Where God will rule and he will judge in the fairness that man could never judge. There will be no need for weapons. Tools of weaponry will be used instead for tools of peace and agriculture and growth. This is the coming kingdom of God. And God said, I have a plan. I'm going to get you there. I am more faithful than you are faithless. And then we see in chapter 5, another verse that you probably have recognized. In verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient of days. Obviously, post-cross, we're familiar with what it is that he's talking about there. What happens when the wise men come from the east and they come to Herod and they said, we saw a star, there's a new king, where is he? And Herod starts freaking out. He's like, oh, oh, what's going on? I'm going to get the religious leaders in here. And he asks the religious leaders, he said, there's going to be a king, where, where is this king? And they didn't even have to think about it. The religious leaders, the scholars, they knew exactly what was happening. They said, oh yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And said, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah when the cities of Judah are all listed out back in Joshua. Bethlehem was so small, it wasn't even listed as one of the main towns. It was less than Chester. (laughs) If Chester had a small district in it, it would be that small district in the small town. The most inconsequential area to to be imagined was Bethlehem. He said, and I'm going to send a ruler and he's going to come from Bethlehem and he's going to rule in, in righteousness. 
Lastly, as we close this morning, turn to the very end of the book, chapter 7. The last insight into a faithful God is that God is faithful to forgive. He is faithful to forgive. So we see God is faithful to preserve. He is faithful to redeem. And finally, he is faithful to forgive. We see the last three verses. After Micah has so thoroughly communicated the wickedness of the people, of the leaders, of the religious leaders, the civic leaders, the individuals in the nation, he ends the book of Micah with some of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. And he starts it off, try to catch this play on words here. Who is a God like you? What's Micah's name? That's Micah's name. (laughs) Who is like the Lord? Who is a God like you? Micah wraps up his book of prophecy with using his own name. Who is like the Lord? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. This idea of pardoning iniquity, it takes us back to verse 7 in chapter 6. Where it's like, do you want us to offer up the firstborn as an offering for our sin? God said, I don't want you to, but I will. I'll offer up my son for your sin. That is what God does. Who is a God like him? who pardons iniquity and passes over transgression. God just can't willy-nilly say, oh, well, forget about it. Shucks, why don't we just forget the past? The past is in the past. Let's just all put our arms around each other and we'll be friends now. Let bygones be bygones. God can't do that. God's righteousness would not be appeased. It would not be satisfied. Instead, it demanded a sacrifice. His own son says later in verse 18, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. God doesn't hold on to this anger. God isn't just sitting there and says, okay, I'm going to pardon you now, but just wait. Oh, just wait. I'm going to bring the judgment and the condemnation of, for your consequences of your actions down upon you. And I'm going to forgive you right now, but just if you do it again, no, that's, that's not God. That's man. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. If you catch the, the play on words there at the beginning, very beginning of the book, talked about how he was going to come down and tread out the nation and to stomp them out, to stomp out the the cities, the places of false worship. And here at the end, he says, I'm coming down against your sin. I'm going to deal strongly with your sin. He says, you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. The last thing that Micah wants the people of Israel to understand is they have a faithful God who is faithful 
well beyond their faithlessness, whose compassion far outweighs their sin, whose patience abounds over their iniquities. And that is our God. Now, I don't know about you. I haven't burnt my firstborn on an altar. I haven't flayed the skin off of anyone yet. I haven't even stolen anyone's land. But I've transgressed a holy God. I've built up enough iniquity for myself, enough sin. But we have a God who deals in compassion, in steadfast love, that word chesed, a loving kindness that endures forever. And we can come to God and say, God, what in the world would make you happy? What could I possibly do to make you happy? And maybe some of you are in that place this morning and you feel that there's nothing you could do to make God happy, to to make God okay with you and to overcome your sin. And you're right. There isn't. There's nothing you could do. That's why God did it for you. Not even offering your own firstborn as a sacrifice for your sin. Because God said, let me do that for you. And he gave us Christ. So as we approach the table this morning, let us reflect on that atonement, on that substitutionary atonement, that there's nothing that we could bring to God, no 10,000 rams or rivers of oil or even our own firstborn that could satisfy his holiness. So God said, let me do it for you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the book of Micah, God. I thank you for the message of your abounding faithfulness to us, God, such a faithless people. Lord, though we may not see ourselves in, in the sandals of Israel of being a wicked people like them to those degrees, Lord, we stand condemned before you, equally sinful, equally condemned equally dependent upon you to provide compassion, forgiveness. Who is a God like you? Amen.